Welcome to Narrative Now, the podcast where we talk about all things narrative. I'm Ash Barnwell. And I'm Sina Raum. And we are both sociologists at the University of Melbourne with a keen interest in narrative. In this podcast series, we explore new ideas and key issues across narrative research and the many crafts of storytelling. We want to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on Wurundjeri land, where we both live and work, and we pay our respect to elders past and present. The idea for this episode came when we reflected on our interview with Rachel Thompson for our first episode of this podcast series. We asked Rachel about whether authors should talk about themselves and their approach when writing a book. Rachel very honestly told us that the author is usually the least interesting part of the story and should be mentioned sparingly. But she also talked about one of her favourite books, In Search of a Past by Ronald Fraser, which is a very autobiographical book. Rachel said in that one, it was okay because he's very interesting. So we wanted to know more about what it means to put yourself in the story when working with narrative. What is too much and what is too little? How can we steer away from a navel-gazing exercise at one extreme or fake objectivity, a God's eye view at the other? So a key point that Rachel also made was that she said, don't pretend to be no one. We know from the past few decades of feminist theory and also from qualitative research literature that the researcher or the author is always part of the story and shapes it in various ways. We can just think of concepts such as situated knowledges or positionality, reflexivity, and so forth. So it feels quite safe to say that we are beyond the question of whether or not you should put yourself in the story, but it's more a question of how to do this and how to do it elegantly and also ethically. So this is a question that touches on a number of themes that feature in contemporary narrative research. To hear more on this topic, we spoke to one of our Narrative Network members, Carla Pascoe-Lee, and her research collaborator, Sarah Rood. Carla is an oral historian and an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Sarah is a professional or consulting historian and co-director of Way Back When Historians in Melbourne. Carla and Sarah have taken a somewhat radical approach to this question of how to put yourself in the story. We'll let them tell you in a minute. But basically, Carla is working on a big project about motherhood and is interviewing women about becoming mothers. She asked Sarah to interview her as part of her project. So in a way, she is now there as both the author and a participant in her own oral history. So while this episode is based on this conversation with two oral historians and their very unique solution to this question, in many ways, the conversation um, addresses questions that are shared and known to researchers across the humanities and the social sciences, working with stories in one way or another. So of course, some aspects are quite specific to oral history. You can just think of something as archiving interview transcripts in museum collections as an artifact for future generations. But most of the conversation discusses topics that are relevant to qualitative research in the social sciences and humanities more broadly, but also if you are interviewing people, for instance, for a creative project. We've structured the episode in two parts, drawing on our title, How to Put Yourself in the Story. First, we asked our guests about the self part. How do we put ourselves into the stories we tell? And then we turn to the story part. What is the broader narrative we insert ourselves into and how does this affect our choices 
as well as what becomes the story. So the first thing that we thought we'd like to chat with you about um, today was um, this putting yourself in the story or that's sort of the headline of the or topic of the episode. Um, maybe to get us started, can maybe you, Carla, tell us a little bit about what it was you did for this study in terms of like, you know, putting yourself in the story? So at the moment, I've been funded by the Australian Research Council to do a project that's uh, constructing a history of Australian motherhood since 1945. And it's really the first overarching history of mothering that we have. And the way that I set the project up was to do 50 interviews with a diverse sample of Australian women who first came to mothering across the last 75 years. So that was the concept. But as I started to do the interviews and probably was about halfway through, I started to feel like there was more to the story than just interviewing these women. And in particular, I became aware that there might be some really strong benefits in having me myself sit on the other side of the microphone as an interviewee rather than an interviewer. And there was really kind of two driving reasons for that for me um, that were sort of epistemological and ethical. So the first thing was that I really believe that we have very personal subjective reasons for why we come to our research as researchers. But I think we can be explicit and conscious about them or they can be kind of buried and unconscious. And I don't think that's a, a, a bad thing either way. But I was really curious. I, I knew that my interest in the history of mothering was deeply shaped by my own experiences of becoming a mother. And indeed, like I've envisaged the project when I was becoming a mother. And so I wanted to kind of surface all of the assumptions that I have about mothering that are informed by my experience and make them more explicit in the way that I was thinking about, interviewing about and writing about the research. So that was kind of, that was the sort of histological part of it. Um, the ethical part was as these interviews went on, I really appreciated and understood how deeply personal the experience of becoming a mother is. I mean, psychologists tell us that it's a major psychological transformation and anthropologists tell us that it's a really significant cultural rite of passage. And most of the women I interviewed were deeply moved by the experience and some of them were upset um, and some of them kind of revisited really difficult memories through the interviews. And I really wanted to better understand how it, feels to sit in that position of vulnerability where someone's asking you about really personal parts of your life. And so I thought maybe um, I need to place myself in that position of vulnerability and see what that feels like and see what I can learn from that experience of reversing the interview relationship. And that's when I got in touch with my friend and colleague, Sarah, who's a very experienced oral historian. Sarah, can I ask, what was it like for you to be, you know, to become the researcher in this project for that, for that stint? 
I think it's a really interesting question and the short answer is terrifying, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, as Carla mentioned, um, I we are friends and colleagues and I've been really interested to hear Carla's research through this whole period and we became first-time mothers at quite a similar time. So there was that kind of shared experience and bond um, as well as my fascination with her research. And I think that um, while I was thinking about um, this conversation today, a um, phone call that Carla and I had popped into my head and I remember physically where I was. I was uh, we often speak on the way to and from places um, in the car and I was driving home and we were still, I was sitting in the driveway for a good 20 minutes because we were still chatting, chatting, chatting. And Carla was talking to me about her sort of epiphany that perhaps she should flip the um, the roles here, that you felt that you perhaps needed help interrogating your relationship with the advice and role that your, your own um, mother and grandmother had played in your mothering. You actually used the word, I wanted, I wonder if I need to interrogate this. Um, also the other thing is that it's one thing preparing for your oral history interviews as the person driving the research, but when you are, um, taking part in someone else's project and following their framework or their, um, Carla has a word for her interview guides that's different to mine, but I can't remember what it's called now, sorry, off the top of my head, but when you're following someone else's sort of framework, it's quite confronting as well. Um, so there was equal parts excitement, honour um, and terrified sort of feelings all bubbling around um, at the outset. So I think it's really fascinating what you're saying here about because is this... Um tension maybe between you know the two researchers then in the project or the temporary for a, for a period of time to researchers and and whose cues and approaches to follow did you think when you did the kind of process of reversing the roles did Sarah um kind of reanimate your schedule in in different ways she definitely did I mean um and and this this kind of comes back to my very first point about the fact that we approach subject matter based on our own subjectivity and personal experiences. So Sarah has had her own experience of mothering, obviously, which is not the same as mine. So the way that she approaches, the assumptions that she brings to my questions and themes are slightly different. Um, and also I, I think it definitely made a difference that Sarah and I have a pre-existing relationship because I felt a lot of trust in her and um, I, 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 I'm not sure whether I communicated this explicitly or not, Sarah might remember, but um, I certainly felt very comfortable with her taking the questions in whichever direction she felt was appropriate during the interview. Yeah, actually, that was one of my primary concerns that we spoke about is what if we go off track here and what if we go in this way and that way? And um, we did discuss that. I, I guess I also reflecting on what Carla's just said, one of the things that I feel came to light in my mind in this process is when you flip the roles and when you hand over the reins, I feel like what happened was we got a massive magnifying glass um, or a massive mirror held up to our processes. And that that was um, one of the most 
incredibly um, powerful parts of this process is that we were kind of seeing the things that we do as oral historians reflected back to us in a way that was quite different and allowed us to reflect on our practice. So the importance of rapport and building trust with, with our interviewees, we know that. We, we, we as oral historians, particularly learning in an academic context, we are very aware of the power dynamic and the, and the ethics and all of that kind of stuff behind it. But when you actually do it, it, you see it and you learn it and you feel it. And so those multiple layers of trust and the toing and froing and that whole letting go of the framework that you think you apply to interviews and just letting yourself be open to that kind of to and fro and the, the meandering and that organic kind of what's happening here and what's going on um, is really important. But I do wonder, and we've I know we've talked about this between Carla and I, what would have happened if Carla was being interviewed by an oral historian who she didn't know like we know each other. And we talked about that, whether that would make it, um, what, what the impact of that would be on the interview. So I think it made it safer for both of us in, in that context. Can I ask, because it was interesting, like I'm, I'm quite interested in these sort of emotional dynamics, I guess, that happen with the role reversal, because I guess we might think, you know, it, the research has the powerful, powerful position, but we've already heard um, Sarah say that she felt terrified doing this. And um, I was wondering, Carla, like, because one of the reasons you said the drivers for it was that you wanted to feel that vulnerability of being the narrator or the participant. And um, I wondered if you could talk us through a little bit about how it did feel. Um, like, did you feel vulnerable um, in this? And maybe, maybe to hear a bit more detail from Sarah as well about, about how it felt to, to participate. Yeah, that's a great point, Ash. Um, and, I mean, of course, we know that it's not, a straightforwardly vulnerable position to be narrator. There's also um, all sorts of power that you can exercise in terms of things like reticence and what you choose to say and what you choose not to say. And in my interviews, sometimes interviewees have explicitly said to me, that's too personal, I'm not going to answer that question. Or they have been more discreet, they've like changed the subject. Or they have, um, I think, just deliberately kept a slight barrier between themselves and me throughout the interview and you can feel that um, as an interviewer. One of the things that was interesting about the interviews with Sarah is I expected that I would be more inhibited when we were um, in a meeting room at my workplace because most of the interviews I've done with people in their workplaces have been less, uh, I'd say less forthcoming. Um, but that actually wasn't the case. In a way, I think I had more reserves up when we were interviewing in my home because my mother was minding one of my daughters in a different room. And even though they couldn't hear us, obviously my story of coming to motherhood is infused by my mother's story and it is also partially my daughter's stories. And I felt very aware of their presence in the house and very aware of the way that thinking about other people shapes what we feel that we can tell. So our vulnerabilities might be for ourselves and protecting ourselves. They might be also about our relationships with others and protecting other people. And I, I said to Sarah, I was conscious at many points during the interview of wanting to protect other people. And there was certain things that I could have explained more because I didn't feel uncomfortable explaining them from my own position, but I wanted to protect other people. And so I didn't go into detail about those things. Um, 
I think that was that was one of the things that was really interesting to me was that there are multiple layers of censorship that go on. There's kind of um, the censorship that goes on inside a narrator's head before they even speak in terms of what they will say and what they won't say. There's the things that narrators tell us when the recording is off before or after the interview that, you know, we all know this as interviewers, right? There's the, the certain things that people only tell us when the recording is off. There's things that might be said in the interview but are retracted or, um, or people decide that they don't want to share that story publicly because of certain things that are said. And then there's, the, and then there's a layer of censorship in terms of... Um, what we feel can be shared publicly through articles or books or podcasts or other things. Um, and I think I, I was, I've discussed this with Sarah, one of the really fascinating things for me was how many layers of censorship were um, operating even within a, uh, an interview setting that felt very trusting and safe um, for me. So that's, of course, also like a really sort of foundational difference between when you take the role of interviewee, Carla, and then your interview, you know, your participants in the project who do not know the questions beforehand necessarily, or even if they do, they didn't decide the questions like you did. And, and um, maybe they're coming um, to meet you in a location or like sometimes, you know, if participants come to meet us at the university, this is a really foreign environment that also can contribute to that felt sense of vulnerability or feeling um on sort of unsafe ground or at least um yeah out of your sort of comfort zone in a way which I, I think often can feed into the interview and encounter or experience as well one of the things that was fascinating about talking with Sarah or, or subjecting myself to an interview was more fully appreciating the way that your intentions for how you want the interview to be used govern what can be said and what can't be said um, comfortably. And so I don't think I had fully thought through what I was going to do with my interview beforehand or maybe I had just assumed that I would give it open permissions. I, I, don't, I don't know, I can't remember now. But um, as Sarah and I began talking, because I, I wasn't worried so much about protecting myself because I bring myself into some of my research and writing anyway. But as Sarah and I began talking and I started to fully appreciate all the other people that are implicated in my story and potentially quite personal details of other people's lives, people that I care deeply about, I started to realise how, uh, I, I realised emotionally, not just intellectually, how important it is that you set some intentions for your interview before it begins. I was so interested in that part, Carla, because I was reading some of the material around your project and your decision actually not to put yours in the public archive. And I was interested when you were just saying that then, like did it make you think about, I guess, issues around conformed consent and, and ethics of the, the women that had chosen in your project to put theirs into the archive when you felt like, oh, no, actually, there's so many other people's stories implicated here and um, I don't want mine in there. Like how, how did you... What came up around that for you, do you think? Yeah, I think it's a really tricky question and I feel like sometimes I'm more protective of my interviewees than they are of themselves and I sort of grapple with that and, and 
the issue of I don't want to patronise anyone or assume that I know better than them what kinds of consent they should grant around their interview. But I am conscious that most people do not have an experience of understanding what it's like to be talked about to become data, which you know, oral historians try very hard not to turn people into data. But you are you when you become the researched, you um, are not simply a human being with a, a rich, multifaceted story. You are something. You are you are put under a microscope, you know, and and you're the personal details of your life are put under a microscope. And I'm very conscious of almost trying to put people on their guard, which is really tricky as an oral historian because it runs counter to one of our um, major kind of inclinations, which we talked about before, which is creating trust and rapport. So on the one hand, you want to create um, a meaningful interview relationship. But on the other hand, I feel very strongly that we have an ethical obligation that goes beyond what is required of us by ethics committees to put people on their guard when it comes to deciding how their story should be used. And I, I try to talk through all the possible ways that the story could be used. Um, and when I'm writing about people, I try to imagine how they might feel if they were reading my words and try to which is really tricky. It's really, really tricky um, because it can inhibit some of the honest or the frankest inter most, you know, interpretations you might make about someone's life. There's a real um, tension there, I think, for us as qualitative researchers between utter frankness and um, protecting people's feelings. Yeah, I just, I think that um, what's really important to consider here is that um, how the interviewer feels about the safety of the narrator as well um, is heightened when you are interviewing someone you know. Um, and then so, you know, I, I know a, a lot of Carla's story, again, through our friendship and through sharing um, the experience of becoming a mother. And I was very conscious of the fragility of Carla's story in my hand um from that perspective of or from multiple layers and again that is always the way when you're in an interview relationship but it made it much more um clear and much more evident um and I like to think that I always hold the safety of my um of the narrators very carefully in my hands but it felt heightened in this context as well I mean, it becomes this um, sort of, yeah, like in the way you speak about it, Sarah, this um, sort of reflexivity exercise that we do at the outset, right, to sort of become aware of, I guess it's both what you're saying about the process and the vulnerabilities and maybe also our own, you know, what it is we're bringing into this and the choices we've made maybe without being fully aware of it in terms of even framing the research project and the questions we ask and the interpretations we, we make along the way in that sense. For part two, we wanted to return to the title of this episode, How Do We Put Ourselves in the Story? Um, and the first part, I mean, there might be a tendency when we're asking questions around this, as Sina was raising with, you know, reflexivity exercises, that we think about that self part, you know, how do I put myself in? And so I wanted to hear 
from both of you about how this idea of what the story is might influence these decisions about how you put yourself into it? Well, it's a really interesting question, Ash, and I, I feel like my sense of what the story is has changed over the course of my research as well. Um, I've often reflected that I would have written a different book in the first year of my project to the book that I'm writing now as, as my understanding of my subject matter has deepened. Um, for me, what's really fascinating as an historian is that the story that I'm telling is not um, a straightforward work of history. Uh, and by that, I partly mean that it's interdisciplinary. I also mean that there's a lot more continuity in this story than historians are usually comfortable with. One of the really tricky things for me, you know, because we're talking about um, working within and across disciplines, will be who is the audience for this story? Because I can feel already that some people will really embrace and enjoy this interdisciplinarity and some people will be challenged by it um, because it's not a straightforward work of history and many people are often surprised knowing that I'm a historian are surprised at the things that I work on are surprised at how much of the present is um, centered in my work about the past. Do you have anything you want to contribute to that Sarah about this idea of like what the story here is? Um, yeah, and for me, it really segues into the to the next bit that I know we're talking about, that broader methodological discussion as well. And I think that one thing that has occurred to me over the years of being an historian and outside of the academy in many ways and, and occupying that space between those of us who understand the um, methodology of history and the practice of interrogation and all of that kind of stuff Um and those of us who don't even necessarily know if we like history and probably most many people out there in, in the real world think they hate it and it's all about dates and, and facts. And inhabiting that space between those two worlds has made me really conscious of the fact that history is about stories and um, the more we can help people connect with the people behind those stories, the more we can engage people with those sort of lofty concepts that we are so comfortable with wrapping our heads around and the methodological approach and the, and, and the kind of the way, the type of history that we do and the type of framework we bring to it. When you boil it all down, it's about stories and it's about helping people connect and understand culture and identity and meaning. And to help people connect with those stories, you have to put yourself into them. So in many ways, um, one of the things that I've learned over time is that we are always putting ourselves in the story on some level because um, we are either deciding what the research is going to be and directing it, and that is us curating on some level, or we are um, working with people whose stories we are trying to give voice to. And in order to build that trust and build that rapport, we must connect with them. We must insert ourselves into the story at that basic way of, hey, you can trust me. Either I've had a similar experience or I have, like you have to give of yourself on some level to connect with a person and, and, and help them tell their own story. Whether it's as formal as what Carla and I did in that kind of role reversal, Carla, allow me to help you narrate your story, or um, 
I'm going to help you tell your story or I'm going to shape my research this way. This is the story that I want to bring to light. We are always in that and we are always the, the one deciding where it's going to go and we're steering that, if that makes any sense. And as a professional historian, that underpins everything that I do. Um, because I'm working with people in a way that their stories are the output. Um, how it, whether that's by in a film, whether that's in a website, whether that's in a book, whether that's in a, a study that goes to, to council or to government, I am writing people's stories into something. Um, so, yeah, there's that sort of interplay. What, what's my role in that? I'm always aware of that. Can I ask, Sarah, how you decide what's too little and too much of yourself, you know, to put in there? That is such a fascinating question. There have been many, many situations where I have sat in an interview with tears streaming down my face because the person's story is so moving and that happens in the most unexpected places. And sometimes I think about that and I think, is that wrong of me to be so openly um, upset and so openly moved because what role does that have in the interview and in the story that I'm helping give voice to but then I kind of think in a very kind of almost fatalistic way it is what it is and I'm guided by the connection that I make with people and I'm guided by what feels right at the time I think um, but also I think my baseline is I never talk about my own experiences in the context of an interview ever um, that's kind of my clear boundary and that's been difficult at many times because of course my lived experience as everybody's is it covers a lot of different topics and there are history projects and, and research projects that I've been involved in where I do have lived experience um, but I try very hard not to talk about my experience of whatever it is um, in an interview or in the context of that research so that's kind of my hard and fast boundary is it's not a time for me to share my story however I, I have become more at peace with letting my emotions and my feelings be quite um, transparent in, in the process of research and getting to know someone and, and doing a formal oral history interview. Um, so it really links back to this idea of what role the story plays in influencing the decisions we make because as you're saying here that it's that tradition of oral history and the idea that oral history is something where, you know, it's not about the interviewer, um, that in, like that influences your decision there and what you do. But I think also and then as this kind of what Carl has done in this project, it shows that, you know, we might also then challenge some of those traditions that we're working within um, and question those rules and boundaries and how they influence how we might put ourselves in or keep ourselves out. So, yeah, it's really interesting to, to hear that. And how that story, as I hear you, Carl, also like ch has changed a bit along the way, right? So from being maybe this sort of... Um, I don't know if you can say that kind of purist idea of the oral history of, you know, the participants in a, in a project that are meant to just be here, be recorded for eternity or, you know, to be there for future generations. Um, but also that changes along the way and the story becomes something slightly different or at least maybe something more in addition to that. And then that also changes how you then can be or feel that you have to be part of the story maybe. Yeah, and I think it, for me um, it changes what I consider the outputs of the project, if you like, because um, I promised, I think I promised to write three journal articles and a book out of my DECRA and certainly the, um, the the book has always been something that's really important to me. The book is is 
partially uh, making sense for me. It's partially explaining my ideas to my colleagues, but it's also I wanted to put something out into the world that the narrators can also read and, and see their stories in print. But it's also that those stories are then housed, archived, protected and valued within a cultural institution. So to me, those things are as important, but I'm not sure if at the start of the project I fully understood that. Um, and then it's, I suppose it's also been for me that it's become about the doing of the research as much as the um, knowledge generated by the research. And so that's why I've started talking about and writing about some of the ethics of what I'm doing because I've, I've realised that uh, there's all, I mean, I think ethics are always deeply implicated in all of the research that we do as oral historians and qualitative researchers, but I think it's particularly central if you choose to research something that is really emotionally and culturally loaded. I think that you then have to add a whole nother level of care responsibility uh, to your work as a researcher. And so that's something that it's, it's been a process for me. It's not something that I totally understood when I was writing my ethics application at the start of the project. And so now I'm trying to not only embed some of the things that I've learnt into my processes, but also kind of write about it and, um, you know, enter into dialogue with other people about how they've approached some of these, with the deep ethical responsibilities that we have as, as qualitative researchers. Can I ask about what's going to happen to your, you know, this, the interview that Sarah has done of you, Carla, what happens to it now? Because we know that you've just signed a book contract for this project, so congratulations on that. And I was thinking about what happens to some of the questions we've been thinking about in terms of, as you're saying, the importance of that process, but also then in part of that process being analysis. Um, so what are you thinking in terms of how you're going to analyse your own interview as part of writing up that book, Carla, if you are going to? And um, are you going to involve Sarah in this? They're all such great questions. Um, I realised while Sarah and I were doing the first interview that if I was going to be 100% frank and I wanted to be, I couldn't archive my interview in Museums Victoria and that is to do with other people's stories being implicated in my story. Um, but the short answer is I'm still thinking this through and um, so far the only collaboration in analysis that Sarah and I have done is through the conference paper that we gave together where we tried to sort of continue the dialogue in a way, I suppose, by explaining um, how it felt on our, our different sides of the microphone. Both of you talked a little bit before about, you know, sometimes the idea that these oral histories will end up in a cultural institution can have some constraints over how you do things. And as a consultant historian who's often you know, has clients and, and people that have a view on how sto the story should turn out. Um, how does that affect some of these, these discussions about authorship and reflexivity for you? Yeah, it's a really good point and it's a tension that runs through most of what we do and something that we hold very carefully in our hands. Um, so we have worked into our process over the years um, a level of uh, interaction and editing, for want of a better word, that perhaps we wouldn't do with if we were working in different contexts. So 
all of our research um, involves oral history interviews, every single project that we do. We always, always give a full verbatim transcript to our interviewees um, and give them the opportunity to edit that transcript before we start to write or produce or make or do whatever it is that we're doing with those stories. Um, and that, I think, given uh, that's one of the ways that we've kind of um, tried to include people in the authoring of their stories um, and give our narrators that, that voice, especially because there's a class thing going on here as well, I think, in a lot of the research that we do as professional historians. As I said to you, we are so comfortable reading, writing, talking, throwing ideas around as we are today. But many of the people that we speak to have never set foot inside a university. Um, and so the concept, as Carla said, of not necessarily understanding what does it mean to have my story recorded is something that that um, is really obvious to me. So showing them a transcript and giving them the option to edit that and then choosing not to pass on the audio if it means that we'd have to edit it too, too much is something that we do. Also, when we write about someone, when we produce something, um, usually our, our narrators are identifiable because they're telling their own story. We will always run it past them before we do our final edit or before we upload to the website or before we publish the book. So there's a lot of toing and froing with our narrators when we're telling their story so that there are multiple points that they can jump in and say, mm, that's, that's not what I meant or that's not how I thought it would come across. I, I don't want to do that anymore. That's incredibly frustrating. Um, because sometimes we have these beautiful pieces of audio or film or, or story that we just don't have um, permission to, to reproduce. Um, so I think as a professional historian, there's a lot more toing and froing um, in and a lot more co-writing of stories at multiple points in the process. Can I just say also, how interesting is it to do, this is essentially a four-way interview, and I find it really, I mean, this is another way of interviewing the interviewer, isn't it? To have two people that specialise in interviewing, interviewing two other people who specialise in interviewing. It's so meta. Um, but it's but it's really, uh, it's really fascinating because most of the theoretical reading and writing that I've done has been about the intersubjective dynamics of two people in a room, which is complex enough. Uh, and the unconscious and conscious stuff that's going on between two people in a room, but with, you know, four people in a Zoom room, um, but all, and all of the stuff that we all bring to this, our um, intellectual backgrounds and our personal backgrounds and our relationships and our, you know, enmeshings in, in, in each other is, um, is as interesting as what we're talking about. Thank you so much for your time and it's a, such a great example to be able to draw out all these bigger picture questions from and I think people will be really fascinated by what you've done. So thanks to you both so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Narrative Now. I'm Ash Barnwell. And I'm Sina Raum. And this episode was produced by the wonderful Kenna McTavish. If you liked what you just heard, you can make sure you don't miss the next episode of Narrative Now by subscribing to this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter with the handles Ash underscore Barnwell and Robin underscore Sina. And keep up to date on our events via the Narrative Network website. Stay tuned for our next episode.